Welcome to the Biblical Masculinity Podcast. My name is Moses Birdie, and I'm the host and founder of this movement, where we are dedicated to reforging and restoring masculinity to its rightful place in the world and in the hearts of Christian men. And we are looking to do this through the perspective of what Scripture says about what it means to be a man, about how men should act in the world, and about what roles we ought to play in society. Now, if you spent any time watching the news in the last few years, few months, especially if you're on social media, I'm sure that you've heard over and over and over again the idea of toxic masculinity being thrown around, or the idea of the patriarchy. It's a truly ridiculous notion, but essentially it condemns the masculine traits in favor of feminizing men in the world. They don't want the aggression. They don't want the stoicism. They want you to be fruity, emotional, weak. The things that they want to suppress are beneficial, and I would argue that they're necessary to society. Now, out of context and irresponsibly unchecked, these masculine traits, the aggressive traits, they can be detrimental and destructive. Yes, of course. But I would argue that if we're employing the full spectrum of masculine responsibility, it's a matter of properly channeling these traits to the growth and the progress of society and the furthering of the gospel. And the full spectrum of masculine responsibility, I believe, fall under three categories, and we will call them the three pillars of masculinity. Here at Biblical Masculinity, we are in the business of creating strong masculine men. Society needs a balance of feminism and masculine traits to succeed. The building block of which is the nuclear family. One husband, one wife, and their children. The family contributes to the church, which contributes to the local community, which builds your cities and your towns, which comprise your states and eventually your nation. But within the family, within the fundamental cornerstone, if you unseat the man and you destabilize the nuclear family by turning men into women, literally and figuratively, then you destabilize the nation. And we can get into big picture stuff later, but it's important to understand the function of men in society by breaking it down into smaller and more bite-sized parts. That is what this episode is all about. What is the point in having men? Now, this is the second episode of Biblical Masculinity, and last week we touched on a bit about me, uh, what the goals were for this movement, and what you could expect from me going forward. But if we're going to be building a movement at all, where men can encourage and sharpen one another, then we need to define our purpose as men first. So who cares? What, what, what's the big idea? What, who cares what role men play? Well, for starters, God does. He was very specific in, in the scripture and the way he chose to set up the family unit, the congregation of the church, the social norms of the Israelites in the Old Testament. There's a ton of scripture that we're going to get into today that defines the roles of men in the world. But before we get into that, I'd like to touch on a couple of things to kind of ground us a little bit. The main premise of that is God made men very differently than he created women. Now, we know that in Genesis 2, God says that it's not good for man to be alone, so he create a helper for him. So God creates women from man, from the rib. Uh, man and woman were intended to leave their parents' house, cling to one another, to hold fast to one another, becoming one flesh. Now we know that this is symbolizing unity in spirit, but you know they don't and cannot literally become the same person. But immediately, within the first couple of chapters, we have the idea of unity and complementarianism here, which we can get into later. We also understand from Genesis 5 that man is created in the image of God. From Psalm 139, we know that God creates our innermost beings. 
intricately designing our physicality and personality with both foreknowledge and, and foreordinance. And I say foreordinance because why would he give certain skills and spiritual gifts to some and not to others if he didn't foreordain their use? But that's another topic for another time. My point is, we know that men and women are different in terms of biology. We're different in terms of chemical makeup. We're different in terms of mental characteristics and social characteristics. And we're hardwired differently. But if we believe that God is sovereign overall, and that Psalm 139 is hermeneutically accurate, descriptive representation of God's intentional design in, in his creation process, and it's not just some poetic, flowery speech, then I believe that we can make the inference that the differences between men and women were intentionally devised to serve within particular roles, i.e. the three pillars of masculinity. Now, men and women are similar in a lot of ways, um, but here and there's a ton of them. You can look them up, but here are some of the most important ones that I've been able to find. And I'm going to read them off of my list here. Men use and have more gray matter in their brains, seven times more actually than women. This results in the ability to process more information in localized regions of the brain. We have far higher testosterone levels than women. They have far higher estrogen levels, uh, but it gives us more dense musculature, higher bone density, which means we're physically stronger, we're more resilient, we're less susceptible to physical blunt force damage. It also means that we're naturally more aggressive and more impulsive and more sexual, among other things. Our brains process a lot of information from a front-to-back pattern, which means that we're generally having better motor and spatial skills in women. We also have larger amygdalas than women, uh, and they have larger hippocampuses. Um, the hippocampus is better for memory retention and sensory information processing, so women are better than that than men. They have nine times more white matter than men. So the brain is comprised of gray matter and white matter for the most part, and White matter, essentially, from what I understand, it connects the hemispheres of the brain. So it results in a higher capacity to multitask and uh, connecting the hemispheres. They have far higher estrogen levels than men, and far, far lower, te lower testosterone levels, um, which means they are physically weaker than men. Not weaker in terms of value, of course, just physically. Um, but they're better at social cognition due to the side-to-side -side processing of information between brain hemispheres. Therefore, it can be inferred. Men process emotion through our logical left brain amygdala. Not 100% true, 100% of the time, just mostly. You know, it's a general fact. The increased testosterone in men makes us stronger, more warlike, more impulsive, more sexual. Uh, our brain composition, specifically ratios of gray to white matter, uh, make us process information differently. Um, we are more task-oriented, and women are better in social scenarios. So why does this matter? Who cares, right? Well, everybody should. You see, I believe that our chemical and our neural makeup inform how God intended us to perform. Men are physiologically made by God to protect. We're literally mandated by God to, to fill and to subdue the earth. We're created to be more spatially organized. We're generally better at performing and executing physical tasks uh, as a result of larger muscle mass, differences in muscle fibers, higher levels of testosterone, you know, this could imply that we're better suited to leveraging those, those strategic differences to provide for our families. This used to be, up until the internet, the digital explosion of the, uh, the, the internet age in the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, but this would be how we would justify men being the breadwinners, as, as most uh, trades are based on physical labor. This is changing in part with technological advancements, but regardless, the intention in our hardwiring is that we're built to provide 
for our families and our communities. Men are also mentally wired to be worse at emotional response. We're better at compartmentalization as well. We're designed for processing emotion through our left brain, our logical amygdala, which is a good for making it's good for making rational and strategic decisions, which is an ideal trait for leadership. Now, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but I want to be very clear on something here. This is not me saying that women can't be leaders. They can, and there are so many incredible leaders within the world that are female. There are also plenty of rational, logical women, and I'm not trying to say that women are 100% emotional and therefore incapable of making strategic decisions. That's just not, it's not true. But what I'm saying is that there is a, a mental uh, predisposition, I guess you could say, for men to prefer emotional compartmentalization and problem-solving tendencies. If you ask most women, uh, including my fiance, actually, uh, they'll, they'll tell you, or most likely tell you, that guys have a tendency to try and provide solutions when what women often want when they, when they have an issue is for men to just shut up and listen. Um, but unfortunately, it's hardwired into us. Well, fortunately, I guess you could say, it's hardwired into us. We can't help it. But make no mistake, it's, it's a, a great trait to have in leadership positions. It can then be inferred that men are called to specific roles as leaders, and we're called to be leaders within the family unit, and within the church, and within the community. Fill and subdue the earth, as God would say. Now, in the interest of keeping things short, sweet, to the point, we can group the responsibilities of men into three general categories of the pillars of men and masculinity, protect, provide, preside. Strength, provision, leadership. So realistically, what do each of these look like? We're going to break them down one by one, starting with protect, then we'll jump to provide, and then we'll jump into preside or leadership, and we're going to dig into some of the proof texts that I've I've dug up for each of these. But in looking at protection, we have to understand the need for it first. The world is a sinful, sinful, wicked, dark place. Every inclination of the human heart is evil. Actually, in Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, continually. There's no need to protect if there's nothing to protect from. But unfortunately, I don't think the world had 8 to 9 billion people in Genesis 6. So if the, if the wickedness of man on, was great in the earth then, how much more wickedness is there now? How much more of a need is there to protect now than there was then? In Psalm 82, there's, there's a, an instrumentalist in the, in the temple in the time of David, in the reign of David. Uh, his name is Asaph. And in Psalm 82, he rebukes the lords and the judges of the earth for their perversions of justice. He states that justice is to be given to the weak and the fatherless. To maintain, where they're, they're called to maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. To rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That is the calling of the leaders of the world, the judges of the earth. To maintain the rights of the afflicted, the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy, to protect. Guys, Exodus 22. God's talking laws about social justice here. Now, not the social justice as we understand it today. You know, this chapter references laws that apply in the context of social sins. 
like sleeping around, wronging uh, sojourners, wanderers that pass through, mistreating orphans and widows, things like that. But something that I find interesting here is that God says, if you harm widows and orphans and they cry out to God, they cry out to me, then I will kill you with the sword. Which I believe in the context of the Old Testament was that God would allow a rival nation to come and mess you up. But he takes this very seriously. Now, when the weak are referenced here, it's inferred that due to their weakness, they're unable to stand against those who do them injustice and harm. And the reality is that men are built stronger, and we bear the burden of protecting those who are weaker than us. We also are called to protect our families and our property. Exodus, uh, sorry, we're going to go to Nehemiah first. Nehemiah 4, 14. Sanballat, the king of Samaria, opposes the Jews as they attempt to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Verse 11 says that their intention is to kill them to halt the work, but Nehemiah exhorts the people in this way. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your wives, and your homes. He's telling the Israelites, hey, you serve the Lord. Let that strengthen you. Draw your sword, defend your sons, defend your families, defend your property, defend Jerusalem. If we dive back into Exodus 22, where he's talking about those social, social justice laws, there is specific law, Levitical law, I believe. I think it's actually considered Levitical law, even though it's not in the book of Leviticus. But it says if a thief is found breaking in in the night and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for who, uh, the, him who struck him. But if the sun is risen, then there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. Now, if we are understanding this correctly, it's inferred here that if somebody kicks in your door in the middle of the night, you cannot determine and discern what their intentions are. So if you defend yourself, if you defend your family and your property because you don't know if they're coming in to kill you or not or to take your things or to burn your house down, if you strike them, if you defend yourself because you do not have the opportunity to discern, then you're free of the blood guilt. And now it's not a good thing, of course, but you're not in sin. You're not acting in sin because of that. But if it's in the middle of the day and you have the time and the opportunity and the literal sight to determine, is this person a threat to me? And you kill them anyways. Well, then God's going to hold you accountable for that. But if we weren't called to protect our homes and our families, then Exodus 22 verses 2 through 3 would say, if a thief is breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be blood guilt. Period. But there's a way out in here because it's permitted. Defend your families. Defend your property. Based on these scriptures, historically, God's people have been permitted to defend the weak, to protect their own lives and property, and they're mandated to protect their families and communities. So what does that mean for us as men? How do we become better at that? We'll talk about that in another uh, podcast. But for starters, place emphasis on functional strength on endurance, on speed, on self-mastery. Side note, we should totally discuss just war theory in the future. I think that'd be an incredibly interesting topic, you know, determining the preconditions that need to be met to justify godly warfare. Definitely want to look into that a bit more uh, because I think it kind of ties into the protect thing, but maybe more on a national scale. But yeah, protect, gentlemen. The next one is provide. Now, one of the most interesting passages for, of Scripture for me right now is Mark 7. 
And it says, and the Pharisees said, and the scribes said to Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? So Jesus says to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says to them, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he said, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, well, whatever you would have got from me is given, has been given to God. Well, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. Now, in this verse, the Pharisees were essentially saying that they were giving their money and their wealth first to God and, and to the church and to the temple and to the ministry. And when their parents came of need, they were therefore unable to provide for their parents. And Jesus condemned them for this behavior because it wasn't scripture. It was a tradition that had been passed down and they made it to where it superseded scripture within their culture. And they were condemned for that behavior. Jesus says, provide for your family. Proverbs 12, 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, his grandchildren. If you scratch off the end of that verse, that alone is enough to chew on for days. How much, how much capital do you have to, to have to build to leave an inheritance for not only your children and the ability to survive for your children for the duration of their lives, but also for their children. That's a lot of capital. That's a ton of money. And that's a good thing. A good man does that. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this isn't talking about, about physical, financial provision. It's talking about spiritual needs. As fathers, we have a responsibility to care for not only the physical, but also the spiritual needs of our children. We're not to deprive and discourage our children, needlessly angering them, but rather we're called to bless them, to discipline them, to comfort them, and to teach them the ways of Scripture and of the Lord. The final pillar of masculinity is preside. But now when we say preside, what we really mean is leadership. Men are called to lead. This is an incredibly touchy premise in scripture, but it's one that needs to be addressed. Paul the Apostle, multiple times over in the New Testament, states that man is intended to lead his wife. I'm not even going to get into the book of Genesis, you know, when people start using that as a proof text. Let's just go with the New Testament for now. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is the hierarchy of authority that's outlined by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Now, now I say the Holy Spirit because we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be fully equipped for, for every good work. That's New Testament Scripture, and it's self-affirming. 
But because Paul is the one speaking here and saying that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, we know that that's scripture and it's God-breathed, and therefore the Holy Spirit says it. But that's the hierarchy of authority. The Father is above all. Jesus does the will of the Father. Men are to be in full submission to Jesus, and the wife should be in submission to her husband. Now, when we understand that Jesus does the will of the Father, and men are in submission, as if we as men are in full submission to Jesus, it should make it really easy for the wife to submit to her husband. It's a natural consequence of men being in full submission to Jesus. But just in case people don't understand that, 1 Peter 3.7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her, the woman, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If we're expecting our wife to submit to her husband, to submit to us, then we need to live with them in an understanding way. And if we don't, our prayers will be hindered. But I want to reiterate, if you want to preside over your family, then be in submission to Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 is probably the touchiest, or one of the touchiest, of all New Testament scriptures that talk about submissiveness. And it applies a little bit less than the last two, but I think in the context of just being accurate, I guess you could say, I don't want to cherry pick here. I think that's a huge, huge mistake that a lot of Christians make, is they cherry pick through scripture, and they, they take what they like, and they ignore what they don't. And we're not supposed to do that. 1 Timothy 2, 11-15 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach, this is Paul saying, or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet will she be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It can be said, then, that God's appointment of men as the leaders is based first on order of creation and second on the fall of mankind, not on temporary cultural circumstances, as some would claim. Men, if you want to preside in your family, love your wives, appreciate your wives, encourage your wives, honor your wives, and submit to Jesus fully. Now, we also have very strict, strict qualifications of leadership within the church flock. And, and I'm going to use 1 Timothy 3 specifically in regard to this because I believe um, in this context they're talking about the qualifications for overseers within the church. And I, I think that the elder or the overseer um, or the leader of the church or one of the, the leaders of the church is probably the highest qualification in the, the Christian faith here. The first qualification is that they should be above reproach. It's a very general qualification. People can't find anything wrong with them. The husband of one wife, so no side chicks. Uh, Sober-minded, so meaning rational. Uh, not to be confused with the context of alcohol. Um, Self-controlled, respectable, worthy of respect. Hospitable, which implies a level of humility and generosity, I think qualified and educated or able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, so not somebody who likes to argue or create discord, not a lover of money, 
Um, and he must manage his household well. If he can't keep his family in check, how can he keep his community of his church flock in check? He must not be a recent convert. Recent converts generally, though they might seem to grasp the nuances of the faith, uh, they generally don't have um, a solid grasp on theology and epistemology that's required to lead. And finally, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that he may not fall into disgrace. I found that one to be interesting. Um, a qualification of leadership in the church, it says, one of the highest roles in the Christian community requires you to maintain a good representation of Christ to those outside the faith. You have to represent Jesus well before you can be a leader. That's pretty telling. Deacons have very similar qualifications. They must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and they have to prove themselves to be blameless. Their wives must also be held to high standard. They have to be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, and faithful in all things. I love that Paul includes the wives here. You know, there's an implication that harks back to the uh, some of the verses that we mentioned before about a husband being the head of the wife. And the poor behavior and or character of the wife can actually disqualify the husband from leadership because it's indicative and emblematic of the husband's inability to lead and possibly emblematic of his lack of submission to Christ. Poor leadership in the context of a smaller circle of responsibility can preclude you from leadership in a larger circle of influence. And these are just some of the incredibly high standards of leadership for men. But make no mistake, men are all called to uphold these standards as we lead our wives, our families, our churches, and our communities. All right, gentlemen, that's all we've got for today. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. A couple of quick announcements before we go. If you got anything out of this podcast, anything at all out of this episode, go ahead and smash that subscribe button for us. And if you enjoyed what you heard, guys, give us a review. A five-star rating on whatever platform that you're on tells your algorithms that what you're hearing from us is valuable so that those platforms can push it out organically to the guys that need to hear this message the most. Okay, so if you got anything of value out of this, please give us a review, hit that subscribe button, and then engage with us on social media, guys. We have three, hopefully four, social media platforms that we're going to be on by the end of the year. We'd like to be on YouTube, but we are on Instagram. We're most active on Instagram. And big shout out to anybody who has engaged with us thus far over there. We really appreciate the feedback from all of you, and we look forward to creating content tailored to what you guys want. Uh, So reach out to us on Instagram if you're on there. We're also on Twitter and Facebook if that's more your speed. Speaking of Facebook, we did just create a Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group specifically for you guys so that you can engage as a community of strong, virtuous men. It's really difficult on some of these platforms like Instagram, Twitter, and even the podcast platform you're listening on right now to create community between listeners, between followers, what have you. It's it's difficult on those platforms, but Facebook makes it a little bit easier in the Facebook groups because anybody can post about anything that they're going through in life, and then the men within the group can chime in and provide value to the to to each other. So that's the purpose. 
of the Facebook group. In our mission statement, we talk about reforging and restoring masculinity in the hearts and minds of men. So we decided to name the Facebook group The Forge. So you'll look for the big blue and orange anvil and hammer, and you'll be able to find us and join there. It is a closed group, so if you're a Christian man, it's for you. Anyways, guys, that's all we've got for today. I really appreciate, again, you guys tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Biblical Masculinity Podcast. Are you ready to fully step into your role as protector, provider, and leader? Join us now at biblicalmasculinity.org to start your journey to becoming the man you were always meant to be.